Our sermon lesson this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read uh, beginning there at verse 7. So if you want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Here the Apostle Paul, in a different letter to a different congregation, the Corinthian congregation, is going to build on that idea of the unity we have in Christ and how through baptism we are united together with him. He's going to build on it and he's going to give us um, a metaphor, what's really more than a metaphor, um, about how that unity plays out amongst one another. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's begin reading at verse 7. One more note. If you guys have your worship guides with you, uh, I want to encourage you uh, to take notes in that uh, and keep that with you because this week we're starting our life groups up and bring your worship guide with you to life group because some of the discussion that we'll have in our life group is going to be based on uh, some of the notes that we're making here in our sermon this morning. This is God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty. While well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. 
and each one of you is a part of it. This is the word of our God. When your church builds a building, then, pastor, then you can really start building a community. Some of you probably know already what I'm going to say, and some of you probably already know how I felt when he said that, but let me just ask it. Let me just get it out there. Why do I have beef with what my friend said? Why do I disagree? What's wrong? Let's ask it that way. What's wrong with what my friend had to say? Let me be as gentle about this as I possibly can. Everything. (laughs) Everything that my friend said, just in this short little snippet, is wrong. It's a a misunderstanding. It's It's a confusion about church how God built his church. It's a misunderstanding about how communities are built. And that's why I'm glad you're here. Because as we get into this third Sunday in our sermon series, where we're exploring this powerful idea about what it means to live all for one, because there is one who has lived and loved for us, we've been taking a look at how that relates in different parts that we do. And we've been asking this question, what kind of people go to this church? And as we ask that question, what kind of people go to this church, it's really important that maybe we take a step back and ask, what kind of church does God want us to be? And so that's what we're going to be answering. That's what we're going to be talking about today. What kind of church did God build? What kind of church does God want us to be as we consider What kind of people go to this church? But before we talk about that, can I say a quick thing about my friend? My friend's not a bad dude. He's not a bad guy. He's not a dumb person. He's not even a heathen person. In fact, my friend is one of the most generous, one of the kindest, one of the wisest, one of the warmest people I know. My friend doesn't go to this church. Uh, He goes to another church, though, and he loves his church. He gives his time, he gives his talents, and he gives his generous financial treasures to his church. And he doesn't just care about his church's mission. He cares about the mission of all churches. So why is it that he said something so wrong? How is it that he said something that is so completely wrong? wrong. Let me say this. It's not his fault. It's not his fault necessarily. You see, there is a powerful force that is active in our lives, a powerful force in our lives that is taking everything community mind, everything that has to do with what community is, with how community is built, with how communities come together here in our culture. And there is a force that is taking those ideals of community and ripping them out of the hearts and out of the minds of the people in our culture to the point where ideals that deal with community something like an endangered species. 
They're an animal, maybe, that's on the verge of being extinct. What is this power? Well, it's the power of people's preference for the personal. Think about it. It is the power that is live and well in our culture where everybody wants individualized and personalized things. You have a personal trainer to help you get ready for that beach bod for the summer. You have a personal bank account. You have a personal planner. Don't touch my personal property and keep your eyes off my personal journal. Everything in our lives is built around personal convenience. People today growing up don't actually ever have to go to school at any level. They can take courses, they can take college classes from the home of their personal computer. People don't have to shop when stores are open, but they can do it online with their personal information already entered, so they just have to click and buy. I don't have to watch Friends episodes at 8 p.m. on Thursday nights, but from the comfort of my home, I can stream the episodes whenever I want on all of my personal devices. We live in a culture that is run by the power of people's preference for the personal. It's the LeBron James factor. No one can question any decision that you make as long as it is a personal decision. People even think whole nations are being influenced by this power of the personal, like the United Kingdom. People think that it may have been a factor in 52% of Britons voting for Brexit exit to happen because, well, they wanted to be an individual nations and not a part of this community called the European nations. This past week, I even read this one that monks are dealing with a major problem. Monks are reporting that a major problem in their monasteries are that when individuals come to live in these communities, they're dealing with culture shock because people are coming such, from such personalized and individualized homes where they're not even used to sitting down and sharing community meals together. And so, and I quote, they find it extremely difficult to adjust to life in community. I mean, think about that. People are having culture shock. People are finding adjustments difficult for living with other people. The power of people's preference for personalization is alive and well, and it's nothing other than this American ethos of the rugged individual, that I can do everything on my own, I can do whatever I want, and I do not need anybody. But it's an epidemic because it's killing our communities and it's also killing the way people live, live in community. So it's no wonder my friend said what he said. The ideals of this power of the personal has even imported itself into the way we think about our faith lives. Everyone has personal views, personal interpretations of what God's word has to say. That's a whole nother sermon unto himself. And if you want to hear that, just listen to our podcast from last week. But it goes beyond personal beliefs and personal invitations. We come to church and we have our personal seat or spot at church. 
We have our personal preferences for music. We have our personal preferences for style. How many of us had said things like this? I love my church. I like church, but personally, I'm too busy to really get involved at church. You know, pastor's sermons, nah, they don't really connect with me personally. You know, I like the idea of life groups. The people in my group, well, I, personally, I don't really, you know, get along with them. And yet we want to grow in our personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to know him more intimately, more personal. But can I tell you something? Not once is the idea or the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, ever mentioned in all of Scripture. Not once. The idea of a personal relationship with Jesus does not exist. But every single time that Scripture talks about a Christian, a follower of Christ, a believer, it always talks about them in the context of community. It always talks about them, about being and having a church or a community relationship with Jesus, never a personal relationship with him. I get it. This one runs contrary to what so many of us think, what so many of us experience in a world that is being shrunk down to the size of our screens. It seems like a radical departure from what is personally considered normal, this idea of life in community. But scripture, it doesn't talk about believers living on islands of individualization ever. Every single time it talks about believers, it talks about them living on contexts or continents of communities of believers bonded together by the Holy Spirit. But perhaps for too long, we believe the opposite. Do you know that national surveys find that one out of every five adults, just look down your row, one out of every five adults feels that they do not have somebody outside of their immediate family that they can talk to about anything serious. One in five adults report that they are lonely. 50% of our population reports that their phones don't make them feel closer to people, but it actually makes them feel more distant from people. Is there any wonder that my friend said what he said? Is it any wonder that when we look at our lives and we think, man, it's going to take some work in the community of marriage, people just figure, nah, we might not be right for each other. Is it any wonder that if we look at our lives and we think, ah, it's going to take some work to have a good community here at work, nah, it's that my boss is a fool and my coworkers are, nah, I don't get along with them. It takes work to build community in my neighborhood. I've moved to the wrong subdivision. If it takes work to have a good community at my church, and there must be a problem with that church's leadership, with its pastor, or something. And so we go on thinking, you know what? If it takes work, to be in this group of people and this church isn't benefiting me personally, I'm just not going to be a part of it.
That's why it's a good thing that Paul wrote this letter. He wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, a letter that was for this church in Fredericksburg too. He said this, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Something amazing. Something extraordinary. Something miraculous took place when you were baptized. You were united. You were bonded together with Jesus Christ, with his body. Amazingly, extraordinarily, miraculously, you were united. You came into community with Christ. In Romans, Paul said it like this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Yo, baptism does something for you. Baptism does something real for you. In baptism, God does something for you. In baptism, God comes to you and he takes your sins, your sins of arrogance, your sins of pride, your sins of preferring to live a personal life and having no regard for anyone else, and he drowns them. He drowns them in the waters of baptism. He kills them. He crucifies them with Jesus Christ, and then he doesn't stop there. He reaches into that grave, and with Christ, he brings you out. He brings you out to live a new life. He adopts you into his family. He brings you into community with him and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in their name, he brings you to a new life. So many Christians believe that Jesus Christ came and he lived an innocent life. He suffered an innocent death and he rose to death. And someday, someday I'll get to be with him in heaven. But that's not true. No. You get to be with Jesus right now, here today. Through your baptism, Jesus Christ came to you. He comes to be in you and to live in community with you. And he made you his own. He made you one with him through baptism. Every time you sit down and gather as a group of believers and take Christ's body and blood, he comes to you. He comes in you to live in community with you through a gift called communion. Every time you open up God's word, Jesus comes to you. He comes to live in you. He comes to live in community with you as you listen to him in his word. Yet there's a powerful force that is alive and well in our culture. It's the powerful force of people's preference for the personal. There's a more powerful force that is ruling in your hearts and in your lives. It is the power of the one for all Jesus who is yours, who is your savior. There is nothing individualistic. There is nothing personalized about your salvation. It is the most communal. It is the most relational thing that you can experience. And it is all with the one for all Jesus that is yours. That's not all baptism does. Baptism doesn't stop there. 
No, you read it earlier that just as one body, though one, has many parts, all of its many parts form one body. You see the body metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, it isn't just a metaphor that symbolizes something. It is a metaphor that describes your present reality. When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his personal person, so to speak. But of that person, of that body, he is the head. And so also were baptized into his body, the believers, his followers from all times and in all places and in this place. We were baptized and we were formed together to form one. And get this. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18 says, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Have you ever thought about that? God not only made you exactly who he wants you to be, but God has taken you and God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be in his body that is the church. Think about that. It's for that reason that you hands out there, you can't say, I just, I just don't want to be a part of this body or I'm going to stay home today. If the hands all stay home, how's anything going to get done? It's for that reason that you feet, you legs out there can't just decide, nah, I don't feel like it today. I don't feel like being a part of this body of believers because how else would this body go anywhere? It's for that reason that the mouths can't choose to just stay home. The eyes can't choose to just stay shut. How else would we see? How else would we speak if parts of the body decide they just don't want to be a part of the body? God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be. And when individual parts think that the church, Christ's church, is more personal than communal, well, then the church ceases to be exactly what Christ built it to be. Christ built his church to be first and foremost this, a place where all are for one, where all are for one another. What kind of church did God make his church to be? He made it to be that. He made it to be that, where you get to come and find a place where every single person is for one another, where every single person is joined in the body of Jesus Christ through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, bonded together in baptism, sealed together every time we get to commune together, every time we celebrate hearing God's word together, that is what he has brought you into. It is a living, worshiping, grouping relationship, a community with him and with one another, where we praise together, where we read God's word together, where we live together, laugh together, grieve together, mourn together, and get this, one day celebrate eternity together. But not yet. Not yet. Because right now, we are working together as one body here on this earth. Can I show you a beautiful picture of how this, of how this takes place? Take a look at this. It's a picture of two gentlemen who were born in the mid-1800s. The gentleman on the front of the bike was named Ethan Rowan. And Ethan was born in Ohio. And he was born, and from the waist up, 
he looked just like any other man. In fact, he grew up to be a man that might be the kind of guy you want next to you in a bar fight. He had a big chest and big arms. But from the waist down, he did not look like an ordinary man. He didn't have any legs. Just 10 years later, in 1855, a gentleman by the name of Charles Tripp was born. And unlike his eventual friend, Ethan, well, he looked not like an ordinary man from the waist up, but from the waist down. He had strong legs, he had long legs, and these two men grew up, and to support their families, they went off, joined the circus, but that's where they met one another. They developed a friendship together that was deeper than most friendship. They developed a partnership together that lasted throughout their lives professionally, they ended up working together, and personally, they ended up doing everything together. And this is a beautiful picture about what, what it means to live and breathe and have life in a community of believers. See, there might not be many people that are born with physical disabilities like having no arms or no legs. But all of us are born imperfect. All of us remain this side of heaven imperfect. No one person is completely perfect and able to do all things. If you think you are, you're lying to yourself. Not everyone is completely gifted to do every single thing, but the things the person next to you can't do, well, you can do. And the way it works in the body of Christ, the way Christ designed each of us to be, the way Christ built his church to be, is that we all work together for that, for the common good, Paul said. The common good is none other than the building up of the body of Christ. You want to know what else I love about this picture? It's how simple it is. It's how ordinary it is. Charles and Ethan aren't wrestling an alligator together. They're not swinging from a trapeze together. But what are they doing? They're just riding a bike. They're just riding a bicycle together, looking like it is the most ordinary, most commonplace thing in the world for two guys to live together in a co-dependent community-based relationship with one another. Because it is normal. Because that's how God built us and that's how God built his church to be. What kind of church did God build? He built one that is way more communal than personal. A national survey took place where, where people, both churched and unchurched, were asked to describe with one word their ideal church. 80% of the respondents said community. They wanted to be in a church that was best described as a community. Is it any wonder? Not really, when you know that that is how God built his church to be. And that's what my friend didn't understand. See, that's why my friend thought that instead of building community, you build a building, and that's what allows for community to take place. But someone said it, you don't need a church to have a Christian community. That's not what builds a Christian community. You know what it does? Relationships. 
Building relationships is what builds a church, not building with bricks, not building with boards, building relationships. And that's why God built his church to not just be a structural thing, but he built it first and foremost to be a relational thing. A relationship first and foremost built on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But also a relationship that is built wherever two to three gather in whose name? In Jesus' name. One of the greatest myths one of the greatest lies that are told about the concept of community, about the concept of relationships, is that community exists out there. It exists at some place that we need to go and discover. It's the gold pot on the other side of the rainbow. That if you just find the right people, if you just find the right place, if you just find the right neighborhood, if you just gather together the right people in the right church at the right time, then you can find community. But that is unrealistic And in fact, it's perhaps unbiblical because community isn't something that just appears. It's something that's built. It's something that's built one relationship at a time. That's why this. That's why we do this. That's why we group. That's why we gather together in groups. We call them life groups. Life groups gather together outside of the hour that we're here on Sunday mornings. What is, what is the point? Well, it's to take care of the body of believers. It is to encourage the body of believers. And yeah, we might do it around food, but first and foremost, we do it around the word of God. It's to grow up spiritually. But this body isn't just focused on itself. This body is is focused also on doing good for others, on reaching out to others and bringing them into the body of Christ where they get to experience that belonging, that joy, the freedom of living in community with Christ. That's why you want to know what kind of people go to this church. You just have to look at the kind of people that you're sitting next to. Because it's, have, it's the people here who have the idea, uh, maybe an idea that's unconventional to most Christians, that what we do here on a Sunday morning is important, but who we gather with during the week and the fact that we do gather during the week is just as important. You want to know the kind of people that go to this church? It's the kind of people that work hard to cultivate that belonging, to cultivate that culture of community, yeah, even when it's awkward. You want to know the type of people that go to this church? It's the kind of people that know if you want to find the community that you've always been looking for, that you've always been dreaming for, you have to first be the community that everyone else is looking for. You want to know what I think is pretty cool? Is as I was thinking about this message, as I was thinking about this sermon this week, um, I went on Facebook because I was procrastinating, and I saw this picture. Uh, It's a picture that says, I absolutely love this. I believe churches are meant for praising God, but so are 2 a.m. car rides, showers, coffee shops, the gym, conversations with friends, strangers, etc. Don't let a building confine your faith because we will never change the world by just going to church. 
we need to be the church. I was super encouraged by that because I thought, hey, I like that idea. And I went to go, you know, click like. And before I did that, I looked and Facebook tells you how many of your brothers and sisters in Christ actually already like that image. You want to know what kind of people go to this church? It's the kind of people that are about this idea. It's the kind of people that are about the idea that every group is a community and the purpose of that community is belonging in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's the type of people who get it, just like Roger's parents. See, Roger's parents um, adopted Roger. Roger's biological parents died of a cocaine overdose, and Roger grew up in foster homes and not in any one home until he was 12 years old. When this couple took Roger home, it was very, very difficult at first. It was beyond awkward. It was hard at first. He had never lived in an environment, in a community that there wasn't violence, that there wasn't anger, that there wasn't drug use. And so the fact that he found all of this in his home was hard for even Roger, and he began to act out. But Roger's parents just very gently would tell him, no, Roger, that's, that's not how we act in this family. Very lovingly, very gently, they would say, Roger, you don't need to yell, you don't need to hit to get attention in this family. Roger, we respect one another. We love each other in this family. And over time, Roger changed. I think that picture of community is, is so true for us. Community doesn't just happen. It might not even come easy, but it comes for one reason and one reason alone. We are united together by the Holy Spirit who tells us you were baptized, you were born again into a new family. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, when one of your brothers and sisters says to you, no, that's not how we behave in this family, you can say, that's right. That's right. We, we are bonded together in a relationship of love, in a belonging in Christ centered around love in these communities. You'll recognize these words. A love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that does not envy, a love that does not boast or is not proud, a love that does not dishonor others, a love that is not self-seeking, a love that is not easily angered, a love that keeps no records of wrongs, a love that does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth, a love that always protects, always trusts, a love that always hopes, and a love that always perseveres. That's what kind of love defines the groups, the communities, the belonging that we have. You know where those words came from, don't you? They came from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that right after God got done describing his ideal church in 1 Corinthians 12, he also described his ideal love to be shown in those communities in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think it's any coincidence that he placed those words there. I don't think that he's ever, it's a coincidence that he's placed you here in a group, a group for belonging a group made up of the kind of people who know that every group is a community for belonging like that. Amen.